from the creators who brought you RuPaul's Drag Race and Million Dollar Listing. This is World of Wonders Wow Report. Things that make us go wow. Hello and welcome to the Wow Report. We're coming to you today from the surface of Mars. It is gray, reddish haze outside. You know, we're, we're obviously under lockdown, continues, lockdown continues. But now in California, we have these fires. Mostly uh, in Hollywood, we're, we're all pretty safe, but it is bizarre, right? It is a weird gloom. It's very... Well, last week, you know, it was like 112 in Los Angeles, 117 out in Palm Springs where you were. I mean, between that and the fact that it looks like we're on the surface of Mars because it's it's red, it's yellow, it's it's very strange. Right. I'm Fenton Bay, co-founder of World of Wonder, joined by James St. James, editor of The Wow Report, and, of course, our chief creative officer and inspiration Tom Campbell. Hello. And we're counting down the top 10 things that make us go wow. And um, let's just jump straight in. Number 10. Number 10. The biggest news, and number 10 is kind of our other number one, but is the Kardashians are calling it quits. You can be super cynical about the Kardashians, and I welcome that. But I kind of salute the Kardashians, who I feel are pop culture pioneers in many ways. And and I feel like everybody who hates the Kardashians hates themselves because I think we get the celebrities we deserve. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> well, it's, first of all, I mean, it's, first of all, it's been 20 seasons, 14 years. It never seemed like it was, it seemed like something that was just going to chug along forever and ever and ever. Um, sort of like another show we know that keeps chugging along forever and ever and ever. But it doesn't seem like it, it was ever, it, it seemed like it was a self-sustaining enterprise that was just going to feed upon itself until the end of time. I don't disagree. I, I have such respect. I'm sorry for Chris Jenner. I talk about years ago, I worked on an ABC talk show called Mike and Maddie. And at that time, it's like 96, Chris Jenner would be booked with Bruce Jenner. They were newly married, trying to make some money, keep the family afloat. And it'd be like, there'd be a segment and they'd do anything like, today, Chris and Bruce Jenner are here to help us to learn how to wrap Christmas gifts. And, you know, one thing leads to another and look at what she has done. So you know, when will it be back? Because we all know canceled or going away, but it's going to come back, right? No, 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 no. What is going to happen is there is either going to be a the movie, the Kardashian movie franchise. They're going big and going movie, or they're starting their own streaming platform where they can get their own money. I think it's going to be. I don't think you could pay them any more than they are paying them, and I think they do have the opportunity to James Point to do something either through Netflix that seems to be having an endless pot of money or mm-hmm. have their own, own, you know, for fans only, Kardashians. Yeah, yeah, Chris Kardashian only fans. I would pay that. But, I, no, I, I don't believe they're going anywhere. Um, but you do have to give it to them. They reinvented the idea of celebrity. They took the they took what Paris Hilton had been doing, flipped it on its tail, and put a, turned put it. Put a family into it. Put a family friendly. They they took party girls and made sure that they were never at parties and always at home. And they made a hundred billion dollars. Each of them 
made more money than they will ever need in their entire lifetime. And the two girls, Kendall and Kylie, have become juggernauts. There is, as you know, a whole other generation bubbling up. Just when you thought Kylie and Kendall couldn't finally get, get old enough, now it's going to be Kim's kids and Courtney's kids, and, and, and that's a whole other thing. Anyway. Uh, and, and yes, and I believe in, in 10 years they will all have reality shows. Yes. Well, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think the Kardashians aren't leaving the network. They're going to leave the planet and start Planet Kardashian. I want to go with them. I want to go with them. <laughs> Don't leave us. Don't leave us. All right, James, what do you got at number nine? Number nine. Well, number nine, earlier today, I uh, had an interview with Dan Matthews, who is the senior vice president for the people for the ethical treatment of animals, better known as PETA. And he and I sat down and talked about his new book, which just came out. And I'm going to let you listen to it here. I'm here with um, the wonderful, the fabulous, the amazing um, Senior Vice President of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, Dan Matthews, who is, I guess, I think, a lifelong friend of mine. I have no idea because... You know, we have a mutual friend in common. We have a very good mutual friend in common with Goldilocks, um, an old club kid. And we are roughly the same age. And you were in New York in the 80s and 90s. And you were out and about with Act Up and and in the scene and in the club scene and everything. And I know we were friends. Were we friends? We probably met in a K-hole at the Palladium. I was thinking it was more likely the Roxy. The Roxy, yes, on a Saturday. Yes. I have a feeling that we have crossed paths many, many times. And I, Of course, I know you from social media, and I followed your career and everything, so I feel like I know you. And because we know, and you know, Lady Bunny, of course, is a friend of mine, and Lady Bunny has worked with PETA many, many times. And I have a feeling we could play two, you know, two degrees of separation all day. Definitely. Yes, but how are you doing? I'm doing great. I just passed my 35th year at PETA. I started here in 1985. Uh, I live in Norfolk now. That's where our East Coast headquarters is. We moved here from D.C. in the late 90s. Um, uh, And it's been a great run. I started as the receptionist when I was 20, straight out of college. But because I was in, you know, the kind of pop culture, early punk scene and gay scene, I always wanted to uh, have people involved in the movement uh, figureheads who were edgy and and uh, would set us apart. Uh, RuPaul was on the cover of our first uh, shopping guide for cruelty-free products. The Golden Girls were among our first spokespeople. Uh, and now it's more you know, like, you know, Pink and Bill Maher and uh, Sia helps us out a lot. Um, so it's been great. And, you know, PETA's got over 6 million members now around the world. Uh, we've uh, Lately, we've been very involved in exposing the live animal meat markets that spawned covid just today, breaking news, uh, we got Tommy Hilfiger and Calvin Klein and other companies uh, under that umbrella to stop using exotic animal skins because not only is it cruel to animals, but they uh, also run the risk of pandemics because of the way they capture and confine and kill the wild animals altogether. So, you know, it always shocks me 
that it's 2020 and we're still getting announcements of, of uh, designers who are not going to use animal pelts and animal fur and everything like that. It seems like such a no-brainer at this right. point. You know, I am guilty of wearing fur in the 80s, and I remember thinking that PETA was like, if they threw red paint on me, by God, I'll tell them something. But now I have I have come around and I would be one of the first people to throw paint on myself. Awesome. <laughs> and, yeah, you are all, all responsible for one of the most famous uh, uh, ad campaigns of all time. I'd rather be naked than wear fur. Yes, which we launched in 1990 with the Go-Go's. Uh, and we just uh, put it to rest. Uh, Jillian Anderson was the last to pose in it last year. Uh, after 30 years, there's now so few designers using fur that we've moved on to other issues. And it's been... Uh, uh, a real thrill to see a campaign that went on for three decades make an impact like that and still have, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of style. So we have, we'll do other interesting things. And um, it's a big month for me right now. Also, what the, my 35th anniversary at PETA last week, but my new memoir is out like well, crazy. <laughs> like crazy. I've got it. I've got it. I've read it. <laughs> I'm so glad you read it. I'm so excited because that's really what I wanted to talk to you about today because I devoured it in about two settings. I, I sat down on a Friday and I was finished Saturday night. I had so much fun with it. I really, really enjoyed it. You've written another book about your PETA experience. What was that one? Uh, Committed. That came out about uh, 12 years ago. And that was about how I became an animal activist and also uh, you know, gay rights activist and, and such. This book is uh, much more about my personal yeah. life at home here in uh, in Portsmouth, Virginia. I moved my mom in for her last years, her last five years, and she was always really out there. She was also well, really been, good friends with Lady Bunny. She'd always been a firecracker. Uh, yes. And she was uh, uh, just so wild, and she, she had uh, some emotional issues, and my brothers and I just chalked it up to her growing up in an orphanage and foster homes during the Depression, but after I moved her in, I started coming in and finding her having conversations with people that I couldn't see. Well, and things well, were, were very dark. Let, let's back up a second because you actually you bought like sort of a ramshackle Victorian <laughs> yes. Gothic mansion, like the Munsters house is what I'm picturing it. Yeah. In need of a lot of repairs, which on the wrong know, side of the river, yeah. On the wrong that you knew nothing about, and you're moving in your aging mother who is going downhill, and that's a big decision to make, first of all, for anyone. And it's not, I mean, go, you don't go into it lightly. And you know that she's having. Um, uh, and the only reason I really did it is because, you know, when I was growing up in the 70s and getting gay bashed in junior high school, my mom was my biggest advocate. She defended me against all the bullies with the school administration when I was a, a preteen. She so, totally supported me in the early punk rock scene when I became vegetarian and then vegan and would get arrested in uh, protest for Peter or ACT UP. She was my biggest cheerleader. She helped all of my friends who were tossed out by their own parents for being gay or when they, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, contracted AIDS. She was our, you know, in the communities, one of our pillars in my circle was my own mother. And so she when the mother that we all really want, you know, yes. I mean, she's just, she's just, she sounds like such an amazing woman. Um, she went by the name of Perry, but at alternate times in her lifetime, she had different names and aliens. She changed her names on a whim, on a whim. She, she changed her names more times, probably a dozen times. 
And it's because that she herself grew up in the foster system and she had had sort of a rough life. I know she talks about a little bit about having to give up other children to adopt. Yeah. And yes, yeah, two two early kids in the in the early fifties. Yes, yeah, and um, she moved around a lot. She had a lot of different jobs and everything. You did, you didn't really know a lot about her life, is what I'm sort of gathering. She always said to me and my brothers when we would ask about her early years, uh, "You kids have enough uh, problems without hearing to hear about my loser baggage." She was just, uh, which we kind of respected. She was a really great mother uh, in in that sense. She uh, was a drama queen, but she wasn't self-pitying at all. So there was just a lot of mysteries. And when I moved her in, I started learning little by little about her early life. But she was also kind of spiraling out of her head. uh, And it got really dark. She thought everybody that we knew was dead. And she was lighting candles all over the house. And so finally... Well, yeah, well, the the first the, one of the first times was when she was talking to kids on the stairwell, yes. and there were no kids on the stairwell. And it's that one of those like what? And you can't. I know. Help. And I always wanted to believe in ghosts. And like I write in the book before this dilapidated house, which I, I, I got, I lived around the corner in this uh, house, which was the uh, yellow fever uh, hospice for where hundreds of people died in the 1850s yellow fever. And I thought. This is my chance to meet a ghost. So I uh, set up a Ouija board, had over some friends. We played Peggy Lee's Fever. Now the ghost uh, up. Still nothing. So maybe they're there and I just couldn't see them. But with my mom seeing them, I was like, where? I want to see too. Do I have to uh, clap chalk things well, to, you know, to see the spectral things? But it turned out there was other things at play. But you, you would think that it, a woman in her late 70s, early 80s, you would think that it would be like an onset dementia type thing. And, and that's where you would be operating from. So what happened then? Well, she had a spectacular breakdown uh, 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 during a thunderstorm. It was very, very dramatic. And she refused to leave the house to see any doctors because she decided she didn't trust any doctors, would never go to see a shrink, would never admit to anything like that. And she, that was her defense mechanism all the way dating back to the 40s when she uh, first started getting these meltdowns because she didn't want to get locked up in an asylum or lobotomized or put in a cuckoo's nest type place. Um, but I finally was able to lure her out of the house uh, during this breakdown with the promise that we were going to go to Krispy Kreme because the hot light was on and a donut won her over. So I got her into the car and sped yeah. straight to the hospital and was able to get her admitted into the senior psych ward where she was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Lifelong, untreated schizophrenia, made it to 82, bluffing her way the entire way. And that's that's one of those things that like you think like that, uh, maybe it's, it's, she had to have been sly as a fox. Yes. Smart as a whip to be able to understand inherently that she needed to hide that from everybody. And she probably knew herself and it was probably just such a burden for her, her whole life. And it was probably something that was probably terrified her every day that she was going to be exposed. Especially in the era where she grew up, where you were just, you lost your job, you lost your kids. Yeah. And I, I have a feeling it's why she lost her first two kids and had to put them up for adoption because she uh, was, uh, you know, it's schizophrenia sets on right after puberty and you really don't know what to do in your late teens, early 20s. And especially 
you know, already being an orphan, she already had, you know, a lot of uh, chips uh, down. But as soon as she was diagnosed and I had to commit her, which was terrifying uh, to the psych ward for a few weeks, I read every skits memoir and every book. And the most recent one said, everything we know about schizophrenia is through people that are in treatment and were diagnosed at some point and were living in a care facility or with their families. The natural progress of schizophrenia in an untreated individual is unknown in modern literature or in any printed studies. So I thought, oh my God, bitch lived with me for five years. I didn't just visit her in a ward once in a while and she had never been treated. I need to write a book that spotlights a schizophrenic who is not a miserable victim, but she a really witty, uh, uh, witty survivor. I see her as a really yeah. uh, incredible, weary, but witty survivor. So I started writing the book and, um, uh, you know, I took a lot of notes along the way. Uh, and uh, Simon & Schuster released it. And it's um, it just came out in Australia last week. It came out in the U.S. almost a month ago. And England and um, the Atlanta... Journal Constitution just put it at the top of their list of Southern books to read this fall. And it's been getting a really warm reception because I think it's one of the few books that is funny that deals with mental health in a serious way and shows a person who survives and triumphs, raised three successful kids and somehow struggled her way through. And you just usually hear about people who succumb to booze or drugs or violence. And this is more they, of a... I mean, there's a, there's a billion movies out that, you know, One Fool Over the Cuckoo's Nest. There's like so many movies about schizophrenia, but you never know the stories of people who live with it. And your mother lived with it for almost 80 years. It's absolutely spectacular. You know, I, um, I was caring for my mother... Um, in the last few years of her life, my sister and I, um, during the four years that she was on a decline, we all lived right by each other. And I was there for the three o'clock in the morning phone calls when she's in the emergency room after the phone, after the falls, and she was in and out of the medical rehabs and back and forth. And we finally had to put her into a home. And, and that, that decline that happens it consumes your entire life. And it's, um, I, I've been trying to write about it as well. I've been, um, I, I've been working on a, on a book about it and reading your book. Yours is so funny. And I, it's hard to find the funny sometimes in it because there's so much drama and chaos and always swirling around and how did you manage to keep your your humor well i was raised to get through the dark sides of life by appreciating dark humor my mom trained me that from the earliest of age especially you know uh coming out in the late 70s and and just how dire things were the only way to really get through was to be able to laugh at things so i was really lucky that she brought me up like that and also she was really witty right to the end on her deathbed two days before she died with the hospice nurse there at our, in our house. I was so glad I bought the house for her to die in and she died there. And I was so happy. She was, you know, very comfortable. And um, the hospice nurse said, uh, we're sitting in the room. She says to my mother, now have you and Dan have, have any discussions about the inevitable? And my mom said, Oh yes. When my time comes, I'm going to hold on till a Thursday because on our street, they haul away the trash on Fridays. <laughs> <laughs> 
So that gives you an example of the tone of the book. And, um, and I think also, you know, in addition to the, the mental health, the schizophrenia aspect, I think people are really, uh, they don't know how to deal with death. They don't know, especially in this country and in this culture. And I've always had a real thing about death, uh, maybe growing up in the AIDS era, that you just have to be thankful that you knew a person yeah. for two years or 20 years and not get so wrapped up in the fact that they're going or that they're gone. And I think the training of going through the AIDS era helped me realize how important it is to see somebody out of life, just like it's important to see a child into their life and bring and bring them up right. So um, it, it this- is. But, you know, I'll tell you something, because I, I went through, you know, I was in the 80s in the trenches as, as well. And I, you know, lost hundreds and hundreds of, of, of people and friends and over the years and through drug addiction as well. Um but there's something about losing a parent that it, you're just you're never prepared for, and it just it 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 takes. It took me a year of mourning, actually. I mean, it took me a year before I started feeling like myself again. Are you are you able? To, you you I, I imagine now you are able to look back and laugh as opposed to cry. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were some horrific moments and I write about them in the book as well. It's not it's not a whole laugh fest. But I think, um, you know, it's it's important to look at the absurdities of the situation as well. And even when she was in the senior psych ward and I went there the first time for her commitment hearing, I heard this crazy voice screaming in the you know, through the locked bolted door. I could hear this voice and I thought, God, I hope my mom's not in the room with that person. And then when they opened the door, it was- I realized it was my mom. And I was like, God, I feel sorry for whoever's in the room with her. Of course, nobody was in the room with them. They're all separate. But um, uh, just things like that. And I remember thinking of how it was just like the scene in The Exorcist. She was being really foul-mouthed and berating this doctor. And, uh, you know, of course, it was kind of funny. To, uh, one of our uh, good friends, uh, Riley, who's the DJ at a strip club, um, who took her to her medical appointments. And th- this book is also about how your friends will really help you uh, when the chips are down uh, here in Portsmouth. We have tattoo artists, friends, stripper friends, Navy friends, ex-cons, you the, run the gamut. And they all pitched in to help because they all love my mom. Right. But we have this friend, Riley, um, who uh, was a strip club DJ, and she's screaming in the psych ward, Riley, Riley, come at midnight with the strippers, but don't tell anybody. Come with the strippers at midnight to break me out of here. And I'm sitting in this room and I'm thinking, oh, God, do I have to tell this board of doctors that we really do know O'Reilly and he works at a strip club and (laughs) not a delusion of hers? Um, So there's just, you know, you have to, you know, you have to deal with a serious situation. But I think it's really healthy to be able to laugh about it as well. Um, Well, And that's a hard thing to do. It's why it took me, you know, 10 years to write this book or or seven years, uh, because, you know, the, the fine line between dark comedy and being uh, insensitive to the issue because so many people are suffering for it was um was difficult um like crazy yeah and i was really um, like um, i i I do we we have to sort of wrap it up right now because we got we're moving on to number um uh eight but i did just want to just say um thank you so much for coming on and it's uh it's a book it it sounds like it's it's it sounds like it's going to be a hard read but it isn't it is a fun read it is a joyful uh, experience and you and your mother seemed like you had such a wonderful relationship and it's a great great memoir and uh, i hope everyone can read it where can they find it 
Uh, you can get it on anywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's The audiobook is on Audible with a lot of trippy sound effects that we did. Um, so, yeah, uh, I hope you enjoy it. And if you want me to sign it, the publisher made me these really cool stickers to send to people uh, that so that they can have a signed copy. I'll send you – I sent you a signed a copy, I think. But did you? Uh, so happy to hit me up on Facebook or Instagram. And I can uh, no, no. Oh, I can do a sticker. We have these cool things. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And uh, do you think that there will be a movie? Do you have any fantasy casting? Um, I did get a call from somebody uh, at a major network the first week it was out. So who knows? I don't want to. I don't want to curse it, but uh, casting. God, I don't know. Olympia Zukakis, Helen Mirren. Uh, <laughs> Meryl Streep, who knows? Yeah, and for you, it's got to be um, Peter Dinklage. <laughs> and He's on the best. that note, we will leave you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dan, and um, good luck with the book. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Great to see you. Yay! Bye. Take care, James. That was a fascinating interview. I wish I could have asked questions. And, like, <laughs> he is. He's a really fun guy, and I really enjoy him. And the book is absolutely fantastic. It's um, it's called uh, Like Crazy: Living with My Mother and Her Invented Friends, and it's about taking care of his his invalid mother, who he discovered had schizophrenia her entire life and had never been diagnosed with it. It's, it's, it's a harrowing tale, but it's told with love and passion and humor. That is fantastic. And we'll post the unedited version of your interview, James, uh, on the WOW Report, okay? Worldofwonder.net slash Radio Andy. That was just a tease. Mm, number eight. Number eight. I wish I'd never started this sort of feature, Trump of the Month Club, you know, like a book. Because I just thought, you know, there'll only be so many books about Donald Trump. But this past week alone has been like five fucking books. The Woodward, the Cohen, and what have you read? Well, I actually read, yeah, Hot Read uh, is Disloyal by Michael Cohen. Uh, A few weeks ago, he released the foreword to the book. Beautifully written, uh, incredibly insightful. I, I guess very much as you might expect. Uh, and here comes the book. And he was actually on Rachel Maddow um, the other night. Great interview. Uh, our mutual friend Lisa Ferry secured the interview. And it was the entire show. Um, and he positioned himself as the first political prisoner of this uh, fascist regime. Because, of course, you know, they let him out of prison. And then they thought he was going to write a book. So they put him back in prison. And the judge said, hang on a second. You can't do that. And set him free. And here's the book. I mean, you know. As I'm reading it, I'm thinking, God, why did Michael Cohen, you know, what was it that drew him to such an evil person? And it, my thought was like, it's just like Gollum in Lord of the Rings. And, and about 70 pages in, that is a comparison that Michael Cohen makes himself. He says he was like Gollum. He said he was a canary in the coal mine for millions of people still mesmerized by Trump. He said it was like having a mental illness. And then and then he sort of slips. Well, he doesn't slip, but he says, you know, the thing about Trump is he's running the world, even if he's running it into the ground, he still rules. Yeah. And so there is this naked lust for power that I, I suppose he doesn't... What was it that you learned from it? What, what, were the, what was the big revelations that we hadn't already known? One of my favorites, there's, there's many that you probably already know, but one of my favorites is he bought this resort 
Doral in Florida, where he was trying to hold the G7 and he was renovating it and he painted the whole thing. And then as they were cleaning the rooms, there was this problem because all the paint was rubbing off. And they were like, what the fuck is going on? All the paint's rubbing off these newly painted rooms. Well, it turns out that Trump had ordered the cheapest paint. It's the sort of paint you use to paint things that only last five minutes that are just, you know, while the sun is out, you have it. You know, it's not permanent paint. It's a a kind of paint called super hide. But of course, rather than own this and rather than take responsibility, Michael Cohen was tasked with going to the paint manufacturers, threatening to sue them, blah, blah, blah. The result was they got 10,000 gallons of free paint, you know, and uh, he, he says some other great things. He says, you know, Trump doesn't help people. He preys on them. And all of the family are like jackals when it comes to harming innocent business people. Because in the midst of this, in terms of scamming the paint company, the painter guy who was told to repaint, they said, I'm not going to repaint. I haven't even been paid to paint it the first time. And of course, the guy who painted it never got paid, never got paid, went out of business. You know, it's like, it is... Uh, another really interesting thing was that they went after the evangelical vote, which is the single reason. I think if you need a single reason why Trump won, it is because of the evangelicals. I think 90, 83% voted for him. They went after the evangelicals in 2012 and they said it wasn't that it wasn't the right time. Um, And then in that time, Cohen met, Jerry Fulwell Jr. Oh, right. And he got them together with Justin Bieber. And then he helped Jerry Fulwell Jr. clean up this mess with the pool boy, a story that didn't come out for many, many years. But then it came time to repay the favor. And so Trump was going to run in 2016. And Cohen reminded him of how he cleaned up that mess with the pool boy because that story hadn't come out yet. And Falwell Jr. was the first evangelical to endorse Trump. And after that, they all fell like dominoes. So you could say that the pool boy is the reason Trump is president. Never underestimate the power of a pool boy. Well, that's interesting. Um, Yeah. Oh, and and one last tiny sleazy detail. Remember when during the election campaign, Trump said that Ted Cruz's father had killed JFK. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Who Trump made up that story? Trump made up that story. Trump made the National Enquirer publish it. I mean, it is, I, at this point, I can't add words that paint more of a shit show than the shit show that it is. Uh, it's a fantastic book. You got to read it, I guess. Blake, what's the question? Well, you guys probably know, but this is kind of educational. Right now in San Bernardino and Riverside counties, the El Dorado fire has already burned over 12,000 acres. Do you know what's caused it? All right. We'll have the answer for you right after the break. You're listening to The Wow Report on Radio Addy. You're listening to World of Wonders Wow Report. Things that make us go wow. And we're back. Welcome back to The Wow Report. I'm Fenton here with Tom and James and Blake. Blake, before you reveal the answer to the question, I just have to let you all know that in this very gloomy, dark time, God Shave the Queens is on Wow Presents Plus. God Shave the Queens is the behind-the-scenes tour 
of the cast from Drag Race UK. Um, they went on a six day to, uh, six days after the show. They were whisked off on a tour all around the UK. You can watch it everywhere, all around the world on Wire Presents Plus, except in the UK. But don't worry, it's coming to the BBC. It's going to be on BBC Three very soon. Awesome. Well, um, I asked a question. In San Bernardino and Riverside counties right now, the El Dorado fire has already burned over 12,000 acres. Do you know what caused it? And it also caused this 2017 fire in Arizona. Um, It's a girl. (laughs) It's a gender reveal party. Can you imagine? Reveal party. I say, like, they're getting a lot of hate. And I feel like it's a lot of big, it's a big deal to some people. But if you have to do it, just do it with like poppable balloons or, or a cake. Exactly. I don't care. And I'm, I'm a bitter old man. But like, keep it to yourself. Pray the baby's going to be healthy. Like, stop with the celebrating. Why even give the baby a gender? The baby can decide its own gender, damn it. A little antiquated, I'm saying. Hello, it's 2020. Well, the woman that invented them in 2008 has come out against them. It's her yeah. child. Is she not- had a cake. She had a cake. Yeah, she it's had a cake. They, them is what they're having. They're having a they or a them. But I don't believe in prom proposals or big... Wedding, like all that stuff's junky to me. Christmas yeah. bar humbug. <laughs> <laughs> you know me too well. <laughs> all right, we're getting down. We've reached uh, number seven, Tom. Number seven. I saw a documentary. It's called I Want My MTV. And it's about the, the origin of MTV. And boy, it's good. Yeah. Have you heard about this? No, but I just, you know, my classic MTV, that changed the world. It changed the world and it changed my life. I'll tell you what. I'm kind of cynical because part of me is like, uh, I start watching this stuff. I'm just being honest. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But first of all, it's a bunch of really old men talking about it and women. But, you know, it's like, it's so funny because it was the hippest thing. It changed the world. And now it's in our rearview mirror. I mean, it's just fascinating how time marches on. And it's also, I think, presented on A&E or the Bio Channel. So the most interesting, you know, razor sharp once network is like on American Biography. Uh, But it's still worth seeing. And there's so many uh, details. Uh, But, you know, it's it's a story about the beginning of cable, right? The fact that we, you know, we had three channels and, you know, and and I'm going to forget all the names, but they're all famous, wonderful people, Les Garland, but there's just the the kind of hanger oners and losers not 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 you know people that were at record companies but were bored people that weren't in tv it's just this incredible combination of people that came together for this no win situation which was to like program music videos which there were very few of rod stewart had better talk. you know they go they talked to them billy squire huey yeah. lewis yes and they had they had an investment uh but they didn't have the money. No, you have to. It's it's pay to play in cable, right? You have to sort of pay cable operators to run your station. And they didn't have the money, and so and then you know you're talking to. It makes me think of Drag Race, whatever. You're talking to old white guys at the cable operators, selling them this crazy rock and roll, you know, thing. They said, you know, the the, the 
the music videos were really cut through, but when they would do their presentations to cable operators, they'd play like Xanadu with Olivia Newton-John to try to get them on board. So <laughs> Olivia had a lot to do with MTV. Um, and they talked about at the very beginning, and um, they would maybe get three new videos. This is like in 1981. They may get like three new videos a week. And they'd be like, yeah, you know, cut to when they were the arbiters of, you know, hundreds would come in and you see them all at the table with this incredible, intense, immense amount of power. Um, and the reason that it took off was they, the, this guy from the, from famous for his advertising in the sixties. So he was an older gentleman at that time, um, had done the Mapo ad. I want my Mapo. And he's the one who said, I want my MTV. And one of the executives, I think John Sykes flew to like Paris to see Mick Jagger, who he was kind of friends with, and said, Mick, can I just tape you saying, I want my MTV? And he's like, why? How come? He goes, well, shouldn't you pay me to advertisement? So finally he said, here's a dollar. He goes, okay, I'll do it. And they, so, and, But then once you got like the top people doing it, everybody did it. And I want my MTV. They literally made a campaign on other cable stations where young people would call up their cable operator and demand their MTV. I did. I was one of those people. I did my MTV. And and it does touch upon, you know, you can't cover everything. It's more of the first seven years, but they touch upon the controversy about the awkwardness and the, and the, about not playing black artists. Right. And but David Bowie was the one who called them out on yeah, that. Yeah. That interview. And, and, and it's the idea that rock radio was a certain way and they were emulating rock radio but MTV did ultimately with help. Michael Jackson after the Motown special with uh, Billie Jean. Yeah. Last fun note is they were like, okay, Michael Jackson is doing an album. Michael Jackson has Eddie Van Halen on Beat It. Give us that video and we'll play it. That was the compromise with the record company. So they waited for the day for it to come. It showed up. They popped it in the tape player. They pushed play. It was Billie Jean. It was a bait and switch. And so, you know, Again, it also reminds you of how rap wasn't able to be played until Aerosmith came on with with Run DMC. They talk about that. They and talk about it, the exploitation of women visually. You know, none yeah. of it's perfect, but boy, what a time it was! And I, I am we're old farts, man. But I I love that we were we got to be watch that and be part of that audience. I know we got to move on, but I do have a little story to tell. When I very first moved to New York in 1982. I went up to see someone at MTV. I went up to see someone at MTV and it was just run by interns. And they sat there with three quarter inch tape machines putting in the videos and they were really bored. I think they were unpaid. Um, and in fact, only certain parts of Manhattan you could watch it. And I'd go to my friend Kate's house uptown because she had the game. They didn't have it downtown, right. That's right. So it was... For yeah. opening night, for the premiere night of MTV, that famous, you know, Radio Kill the Radio Star, they had to rent buses and drive to someplace in New Jersey and go to, like, a senior citizen bar in order to watch it in the basement. There's great stories. Uh-huh. It, yeah, yeah. Amazing. All right. That's on uh, – and I Want My MTV is on A&E. James, what have we got number six? Number six. I have been watching – the boys after every single person I've ever met in my entire life has said, James, the boys, Amazon prime. You're going to love it. It's going to be your favorite show of all time. 
I finally had Amazon Prime, which I resisted having for about five years now. The Boys is a um, very dark take on the superhero genre. It's a group of superheroes called The Seven, and they are mostly douchebags in fame whores and just assholes. And they're run by a, cor- a multi-billion corporate corporation who is mostly interested in having movie franchises and action figures and red carpet appearances and having them do PSAs than so, like doing crimes. And if they do solve a crime, it's usually just set up just for the photo op. And there's the lead of it is a guy named Homelander, who's sort of the super Superman type. And he is just as dark and is twisted as you can get he becomes more loathsome as the series goes on there's a young girl who joins the team she's uh starlight and she is this young girl bubbling with youthful naivete and she thinks she's going to come in and do do great things and on her very first day one of the one of the other superheroes makes sexual advances on her in the bathroom and she just sort of realizes right off the bat that this is not going is not what she wants meanwhile there's another group called the boys then they're vigilantes and they're trying to get the goods on the soups the superheroes to take them down and to show the world what frauds they are and it is when i say it is dark and it is violent and it is twisted and the comedy is so crazy that you find yourself laughing and then you're like shocked that you are laughing because like there's this character the deep played by chase crawford from gossip girl and he's like an aquaman character and he has gills on under his costume because he can breathe underwater and he gets fingered his gills get fingered uh, uh, some girl is like has unconsensual finger finger sex with his gills, and is really awkward. And he feels violated and raped. And it is, and it is, and then he has this. He has an unnatural love for dolphins, and there's always all these blowhole jokes about how he fucks blowholes. And there's a scene where he's rescuing a dolphin, and he's talking to the dolphin, and things get really weird with the dolphin. And I, that's the last time, because that is like one of the most iconic scenes I've ever seen on a TV show ever. Him and the dolphin. It is so weird. But the show is absolutely adorable. It's hysterical, and um, it's my new favorite show of all time. So, the boys. It sounds like that title would be perfect for you. You know, <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's all you needed to lure me in. It's a show called The Boys with hot boys. Chase Crawford is in it, and I'm there. But this is season two, right, James? You've come to it a little later. You know, normally well, you're... it is. It, I, I did all of season one on Saturday, and now I've caught up with season two. So I'm I'm all there. James has already explained to us the time continuum no longer bad. It's all messed up. There's no first season, second season, later. Well, the, the second season did just start, and so I waited until the, so that I could watch it all. I could do it all in one weekend, which I did. Right. All right, that's The Boys on Amazon Prime. Uh, Number five. Number five. Going to keep things dark and twisted. Me and Melania. It's uh, by Stephanie Winston Wolkoff. So I guess she's of the Winston family jewels dynasty. And it's all about her best friend, Melania Trump, 
I feel the premise of the book is flawed from the very beginning because the one thing you get really quickly is that Melania Trump is not anyone's best friend. She's right. just an evil bot from the future, as I've said before. And like, it's just sad to see Stephanie think that she is the best friend of Melania. Right. But still. Um, and uh, they have lunches and they send each other emoji-filled texts. And Stephanie, as she reminds us many times, produced the Met Ball. I'm sure Anna would endorse that. And she she says she says she always asked Anna for advice. She worked at Vogue for many years and always took Anna's advice. But I cannot believe she took Anna's advice to get involved with Melania Trump. In fact, it seems that several of her friends, when she said she was best friends, they were just like, run, just run in the opposite direction. Um, Melania is revealed in this book as a fitting wife to Trump in terms of being equally loathsome and cruel and despicable and beneath contempt. Um, somehow she ends up helping Melania with the inauguration, which is just a shit show of infighting. They raised 104 million, which was twice as much as Obama had raised. 40 million of it to this day remains unaccounted for. Okay. Um, there's a three a focus of three separate investigations. But I think what, what ruins this book, I, I, God knows why I even stuck with it so long. I was listening to it on Audible and I sped it up to get through it more quickly. And it sort of became hip. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, just sort of so distraught at this, because it's basically she's a narcissist writing about narcissists and just, it just, they're sort of sharking on each other and shitting on each other. And it's just really, horrible um it's funny because between cohen's book and woodward's book they came out this week as well are you going to read the bob woodward book i think i i i guess i will have to but i'm realizing i have a i it's getting a little really upset, so much like it's getting it's weird it's getting it's getting unhealthy I but, think so, yeah. but i haven't you haven't really heard that much about the melania book you haven't gotten any like shocking revelations right out of it um, I well, there's there's a block uh, operation block Ivanka, which was right. uh, her and Melania just positioning everyone at the inauguration so that Ivanka couldn't be seen. I think the revelation is that Melania says um, pleasing anyone else is not my priority, and I think that they have it. You know, um, I agree. I, I've only read excerpts, and I you know, I found all the revelations rather dull and rather predictable except for the idea that somewhere in the back of her heads were like, free Melania, blink twice. Yeah, and, yeah. and you realize she is 100,000% complicit, probably more powerful than Ivanka, I mean, Ivanka for all we know. Yeah. And it's really summed up with that jacket she wore that day, which she's being very uh, honest. I uh, don't care. You, to you. Yeah. That exactly. She, she survives in her world the way she survives in her world. She doesn't give a shit about anybody else. Exactly, exactly, exactly. She was... Um, Rachel Maddow, like I wouldn't ever imagine Rachel Maddow would read this book, but she did have her on because I think rightly she thinks that what happened to that 104 million in the inauguration yeah. Yeah. is a real scandal. I mean, obviously it's the first of many scandals, but it's like it's really I, I don't I don't believe that I don't believe that anyone will ever be held accountable for any of it. I really don't. Um, I gotta tell you, Drag Race Holland premieres next Friday, that's September the 18th, on Represent Plus Worldwide, except for in the Netherlands, where you can watch it on Video Land. 
um, to sign up for whoever's in plus. RuPaul watched an episode, and even though he does not speak a word of English, it was yet to be subtitled. He says it's totally followable and the best, maybe the best drag race ever. The looks are fantastic. And indeed, it will be translated, so you don't have to speak Dutch. And they also lapse into English all the time anyway. It's a very expressive language. Well, I've got a question. It's about TV, actually. This woman was voted the sexiest TV star in history by TV Guide in 2002, along with George Clooney. Who is she? All right, you're watching and listening to The Wow Report on Radio Andy. We'll be right back with the answer after the break. You're listening to World of Wonders Wow Report. Things that make us go wow. And welcome back to The Wow Report. I'm Fenton here with Tom and James and Blake, who had a teasing question for us. I did. Um, this woman was voted the sexiest TV star in history by TV God magazine in 2002. I think it's Diana Rigg. You got it. Oh! She just passed away this week, sadly. And um, we uh, I loved her on Game of Thrones and, of course, on, um, what was it? The Avengers. The Avengers, yeah. Oh, loved her on The Avengers with Steed. What was Steed's name? Uh, McCarthy McCartney, and he wore a a bowler hat, and had a cane. I think that Emma Peel in The Avengers, played by Diana Rigg, is like a jock strap. It's like gay little boys everywhere, did not know each other, did not know our culture, did not know how to explain our sexual orientation. But you say to anyone who was exposed to Emma Peel or jock straps, and they were wildly stimulated. There's something about her beauty and her appeal in that period. I know she had a huge career. She's a dame and all that stuff. But there's something indelible about the image of Emma Peel. You are so right. And let me just add, it was also at either the same night or roughly the same time as Man Called Ironside, which I also had a strange, unaccountable attraction to Raymond Burr in the wheelchair. I had no idea he was one of the biggest gays. Exactly. So there you go. Yeah, right. All right. We're counting down the top 10 things that made us go wow. And we've reached number four. Number four. In addition to all the, uh, I don't want to say Trump bashing because that sounds too mean, but, you know, reporting on all the atrocities that are being revealed day after day about Trump, I also try to post something at least once, if not twice a day, positive image-wise about Biden and about Kamala Harris and about, you know, the idea that they're such kind people with pets and grandchildren and, and they grew up in neighborhoods like we grew up in and all that kind of stuff. But... And so I'm, but I'm always searching for something. And Miss uh, Kamala Harris gave me the uh, best one ever this week, as she was um, filmed coming off a private jet, going you know to a, a campaign stop, wearing uh, you know her usual kind of conservative, tight-fitting you know business suit with a pair of Converse uh, sneakers. Yes. What are they called? Uh, a Chuck. Chuck. She was wearing a pair of Chucks. And but- it looked so right. And this is something she's been doing. I mean, it's it's normal, right? I'll, we're the same age as her, basically. We wear sneakers. The world wears sneakers. She's been wearing them on her campaign when she was running for president, and now she's doing that. But I can't just tell you, there was something about the the gait of her, you know, she was kind of skipping down the stairs, not hobbling down. <laughs> sneakers, running for the second highest land. I love that she's from, a, you know, a black and Indian background, you know, and I just love everything about her. I find her so inspiring and... Uh, and smart, um, yeah. but just seeing her in the sneakers, which is just an image and a silly thing, but it it, it sticks with me. And it's like, I, I don't know. I, I hope little things like that. I know they're superficial, but I hope that they help 
uh, amplify, I don't even know how to say it, but like send out the message visually of, of, of a new hope and a new generation and someone, and I know Biden's old and it's, I think it's, but he's embraced her and taken her in. And I just am so optimistic, cautiously optimistic about uh, a country run by those two. And I know we're still in a shit show, but boy, do we need to save ourselves. And it is, it's getting tighter and tighter and it's going to be scarier and scarier right down until the line. So fingers crossed. So all righty. America. On that note, person, woman, man, November vote. Very important to vote. And this fabulous T-shirt, just 20 bucks from the WOW store. Uh, all the proceeds go to the NCBCP, which is the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation. All right. Number three, James. Number three. I want to uh, revisit uh, a topic we were talking about before, Lovecraft Country. It's such an interesting show, and I want everybody to give this a shot. I, we talked about how it's from Jordan Peele, the guy from Get Out, and it takes horror and science fiction genre tropes and turns it on its ears and t- tells it from a black perspective. And we know now that the great uh, legendary science fiction writer H.P. Lovecraft was himself a virulent racist and a horrible, horrible man. And so many of the monsters in the stories were metaphors for his racism. And so this is a way of reclaiming those stories, maybe not reclaiming them, but just sort of um, acknowledging them. And like I said, telling them from a black perspective to sort of allow it to still enjoy it, but to give the, the black voices their power. Um, and and all, another thing that this show does, like the first episode, which we talked about and how it introduced people to the, the concept of sundown towns where, you know, it was fine to be black during the daytime. But when the sun went down, you had to be out of town. And that was something that was very real in many counties and cities across America. But it's sort of been lost and people don't really talk about it. And this sort of shed, shed a light on it and how that there were these monsters with 120 eyes that were chasing them. But the real scariness was the, the, the bigotry of, of the people in the, of the white people in the town. So who are the biggest monsters, the Lovecraft monsters or the regular monsters? Well, in episode three, the girl, what the girl Letty played by journey Smollett buys an old dilapidated gothic mansion that she's going to um, restore and turn it into a boarding house for black people. And it's in a white neighborhood and the white neighbors are not happy with that. And they burn crosses on her lawn and they are torturing her and everything. Well, come to find out the house is also haunted. It was owned by a professor at a local university and he was using black students as human guinea pigs and doing awful experiments on them in which they would die and they would be mutilated. And that's another thing that really was happening in the 30s and 40s that doesn't really get talked about that much. And so the ghosts in the mansions are the dead victims of the people who were experimented on. And so once again, you have this issue of who is, you know, are you scared of the ghosts or are you scared of the your white neighbors out there who are the ones who are really causing the problem? And 
um, every episode seems to take on another trope, another genre. This the fourth episode was sort of a cross of night at the museum with uh, Indiana Jones. So it allows the black community to have those stories, like an Indiana Jones story, a haunted house story, uh, you know, a monster story. But they, but it gets to be, all be told from a black perspective, and it's absolutely so interesting. Are they sort of episodic, like self-contained episodes? Well, they are and they aren't. I mean, you can just sort of jump in, but there is an overarching theme of, of things that are happening and the relationships that are happening between the people. But it's fascinating. They keep shining spotlights on little-known atrocities that happened to the African-American community, much in the same way that people didn't really know about the Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre until Watchmen started last year. And, with the, with, um, and that's when everyone started looking into it again. So I really applaud HBO for for doing something like this, which is a, 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 just a fun, silly, you know, horror science fiction show. But it has it goes deeper than that, and it's, it's worth taking a look at. All right, that's uh, Lovecraft Country uh, streaming on HBO Max. Number two. Number two. I found a new podcast because I couldn't read any more books. <laughs> it's called Bunga Bunga. In the 80s, in Italy, there was this guy called Silvio Berlusconi. And he was like five foot five, and he was a singer. And his dad said, you can't sing. you got to go to law school. So after law school, he bought a plot of land. He started building apartments. He made a shitload of money. Then he built a gated community, more apartments. And into the gated community, he didn't just put televisions. He put cable. And at the time in Italy in the 80s, there, was, there, was hardly any, there were hardly any stations. It was like sort of pre-MTV era. Yeah. Um, but what he did is he bought Dallas and he bought Dynasty and people got completely addicted and hooked. And Silvio Berlusconi, of course, went on to become a multimillionaire. He also became really good friends with the then prime minister of Italy, who was what Silvio Berlusconi called the asshole client. You know, there's always someone in your life which is the most difficult person in the room or the person that you work with who makes your life difficult every single day, every single way. Because Berlusconi says, if you can befriend the asshole client, the world is your oyster. So he was really good friends. But then the asshole client, the prime minister, was exposed as being up to here in bribes and corruption and what have you. And Berlusconi, unfortunately, he was a little bit in the illegal space himself. And as this whole cleanup operation zooms in, Berlusconi realizes he's got to do one thing and one thing only, run for prime minister. Because if he becomes a politician and sits in parliament, he will be immune from prosecution. If any of this is ever sounding familiar or a little close to... (laughs) So Berlusconi creates a new party. And it's called Go Italy, Forza Italia, Make America Great Again. I mean, Go Italy. Yes, Make Italy Great Again. And he wears a suit and he is very suntanned and he smiles and he's very big on TV and everybody loves him. Very anti-immigrant, no data, no political experience, wants to run Italy like a business. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, long story short, yes, he does become prime minister. And the shit show of all shit shows hits Italy as a result. But it's interesting to know that this all happened in Italy in the 80s and 90s. And Bunga Bunga is a, I think it's a nine or six hour podcast. They've only released the first two episodes. It's from Wondery. But I really do recommend listening to it because like everything that's happening now, it already happened in Italy. So If you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. Right. Okay, let's take a break. Um, one more plug for WoW Presents Plus. Drag Race Thailand Season 2 is now available on WoW Presents Plus. So when you're watching Drag Race Holland, you can also watch Drag Race. Please, please, dear God. That's just like a weekend of binging for you. It's nothing. <laughs> <sighs> When we come back, we'll reveal the number one thing on this week that made us go, wow. You're listening to World of Wonders Wow Report. Things that make us go wow. Welcome back to the Wow Report. I'm Fenton. I'm here with Tom and James. We've reached number one. Number one. Did you hear about the um, the kid in um, Thailand? I can't remember where he was in Thailand, but he... He went home. I know where he was. He was on the toilet is where he was. He sat down to take a dump. And I think he said he was on his phone. There's a video where it's all reenacted in the action. And he suddenly felt immense pain in his penis. And he looked down and a python had bitten the head of his penis. So he leaps up, runs out, things dangling from, you know, attached. And he had the presence of mind to shut the bathroom door. He shut the python in the bathroom door, which made it let go. Blood everywhere. Had to go to the hospital. But was quite happy to sit on the same toilet and reenact it. So that's all I know. Yeah, but this is never what I don't. This is never what I understand with these with these pythons coming through toilet stories, is because <laughs> the way the and my knowledge of plumbing is is scant, but. <laughs> Let me just I do know the water comes from the, the toilet behind you. So it must have been in there before it because that's where it goes into the pipe. It gets in. But there is a hole that goes into there's a pipe that when you flush, so it must be going against current like a oh, Okay, okay. Cause I thought it was just hanging out in that behind you, which is sort of scary too. It was a four-foot-long snake, too. Uh, How uh, long? Four-foot-long. For a moment there, he must have looked well-endowed. <laughs> My anaconda don't. My <laughs> anaconda don't. My oh, God in heaven. Well, that, what is, uh, that would make you go, wow. That's a real wow. Ow, right? Wow. James, do you have a number one for us? We can well, just do that one. No, I mean, it, it, there were so many things that happened this week with with Trump and, um, uh, you know, the we, we never talked about Trump and the, the soldiers and we didn't talk about Trump admitting that COVID-19 was more deadly than it was. And we didn't talk about Melania's Rose Garden, ha! which had to be dug up after three weeks. Um, oh, did? Why? What happened? Because there was uh, plumbing issues and there was uh, like a septic tank that was running through it. And it was I hope it wasn't was full of pythons. <laughs> yeah, right? It was full of shit is what it was full of. 
So I mean, but there's been a lot of things going on, but I, I think your number one will will suffice, and um, I think we're good to go. I think the lesson is, don't let life bite you in the dick. <laughs> Do what James does and bite life in the dick. <laughs> I think we've lost James anyway. All right, thank you, James. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Blake. Uh, same time, same place. Next week. Until then, go out and do something that makes the world go wow. wow.